Hi, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to our Provost podcast series, Faculty in Research. I am delighted this week to welcome Cal Newport, a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Department of Computer Science here at Georgetown. And in that regard, he studies the theory of distributed systems, but in addition to his academic research, he writes about the intersection of technology and society, among other things. He's particularly interested in the impact of new technologies on our ability to perform productive work and lead satisfying lives. Cal's published six books since 2005, including his most recent work from 2019 entitled Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Uh, This book has been a bestseller on almost every list nationally. Along with other writings, Digital Minimalism advocates for limited usage of social media and distracting technologies in order to maintain and develop our propensity for deep, prolonged focus. So, Cal, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you here. And maybe we should begin, since I mentioned your books that are outside the realm of traditional computer science, with uh, your reflecting on how you got into that part of your life. What compelled you to to write in those areas? I can actually give a lot of credit to student loans, believe it or not. So if if you rewind the clock all the way back, I had been an entrepreneur as a high school student. So this was the late 1990s, which was the first dot-com boom. And so I had a dot-com company, which for the audio listeners out there, I'm sort of putting air quotes around it because this was not a large company, but I had a dot-com company, which meant as a teenager, I was reading lots of business books, which is an unusual thing for a teenager to do. So then when I got to Dartmouth, and I had student loans piling up, I thought, okay, I want to do this well. I want to make the most of my investment. This is the business mindset. So why don't I go get some advice books about how to do this well? And what I found is in the late 90s, early 2000s, most of the books that were being written for college students uh, in the advice space were quite light. So there is this sense in the publishing industry, I learned later, that you had to be cool and irreverent or a college student wouldn't take the book seriously. And I thought this was preposterous. I said, look, I'm making an investment in school. I want to get the hard facts. How do I study? How do I get good grades? And so I launched this idea. What if someone wrote a college advice guide in the same way you would write a business advice guide? So no nonsense. Go out there, study top students. Here's what they do. Here's how to do it. Get rid of the fun. Get rid of the irreverent. Uh, And at some point during college, a entrepreneur friend of mine says, well, why don't you do that? Stop talking about why don't you write it. And so that's how I stumbled into the world of book writing was essentially on that day. I said, okay, I will. And so I did. And I, so I signed my first book deal the summer after my junior year of college. Mm-hmm. And it was to write a book called How to Win at College. And it was a business advice guide style book about what really successful college students do. So, so this is a fascinating story because... Uh it was the entrepreneur side of you that really propelled this forward. It was. Well, in part because that had exposed me to this particular genre of books, and in part because it, it gave me an attitude of, well, why not? Why not try it? Now, I should add, it was this initiative was helped along by the fact that when I was in college, in addition to computer science, which was really my primary focus, I was writing. 
And so I was a columnist for the newspaper and I wrote for the humor magazine. And by the time I graduated, I was the editor of the humor magazine. So I was doing a lot of writing as well. So I also had that kind of coincidentally orbiting around. I knew how to craft a sentence. And I had this entrepreneurial idea that someone should write this book. So those two things collided in a sort of uh, coincidental combination to to push me down that path. Uh, So this came out in junior year or senior year? I wrote it the fall of my senior year. And it came out right after I started graduate school mm-hmm. the next fall. Mm-hmm. So my first semester as a graduate student. So what was that like? Because the book had some success pretty early on, right? I didn't tell anybody, right? I mean, so at this point, I was, I was at MIT, which is very much focused, obviously, on research. And this is, what, this is what the whole thing was about. And so I didn't bother telling anyone. And it was actually two books into my writing career before my advisor discovered that I wrote books, and she discovered it because they had it out on the table at the MIT co-op. <laughs> so she, she said, what are you writing? I thought she would be mad at me, to be honest. Uh, and so this was going on, but it was a, it was, it was 100% separate at this point. On this fear that she would be mad at you, was it that uh, you might be treated as not serious about computer science? Was that the feeling you had? Or not spending enough time uh-huh. uh, on research. Now, but this was the other advantage I had from my entrepreneurial background is that I was deeply steeped in time management strategies. And there's sort of few individuals on earth worse at time management than graduate students. So comparably speaking, I had no trouble publishing quite a bit, doing my classes, and writing books at the same time, mainly because I just knew from a business perspective how to actually manage your time and and, and how to shift things around. And so once I had my publication record off to a good start, I felt a little bit more comfortable. Uh Yeah. So let's go to the other side of your mind on on computer science. So what was the germ of that interest? I mean, I was a longtime childhood computer nerd. So that, to me, that was more obvious. I was the kid who was programming computers at a very young age. By the time I went to college, you know, I had been taking computer science classes at Princeton, which was nearby where I grew up, because I there was nothing left to take at the high school level. I had had the company. I had uh, been a professional programmer. This was my summer jobs when I was 15 or 16 years old. Is I was, you know, programming for office parks. I would go into an office park <laughs> and go to these consulting firms and program. And so I was always a computer guy. And so to me, the idea that I would at least try to study that when I got to college was pretty natural. Mm-hmm. So tell us what distributed systems mean? And and what are the uh, puzzles that you find intriguing in a way that you can uh, devote years of your life to that topic? So a distributed system is when you have multiple different computing processes that have to work together to solve something. So the classic example today would be like a data center. You might have 100,000 different processors in a giant Google data center, and they all have to work together to, let's say, implement a search query. Uh, that's a distributed system. The, the older classical example would be like a redundant database. So you have three or four copies of the database on separate machines. They're trying to keep themselves consistent so that if one crashes, the other ones can take over. And so distributed systems are, they have a long history within the system side of computer science. My advisor and my specialty uh, comes at it from the theoretical side because it turns out there was sort of a series of results, some start in the 70s and a lot in the 80s, that found that when you mathematically modeled these systems, 
there were really interesting results that came out, in particular impossibility and hardness results. Certain problems that you just assumed if you're an engineer that of course we could solve this with the right algorithm turned out to be impossible. And so the theory of distributed systems, which is what I study, has this sort of interesting existential through current where it's Mm -hmm. looking at what's possible and what's not possible. What are fundamental difficulties? What are fundamental roadblocks to solving certain problems once you're in the situation where you have different entities having to work together to solve things? Mm -hmm. For the most part, I'm I'm very interested in less so in here's an existing system and let's prove some more results and more so in let's push something to an edge we've never been at before. What's the minimal number of states to do this? What's the minimal number of rounds to do this under this extreme situation? And, and when you're looking ahead, is there a whole agenda that you have in your mind? Or d- does the external world give you puzzles that you say, oh, gee, I, I got to work on that? The external world often does give us uh, puzzles. So like right now, for example, I'm, I'm working on a, a project funded by the NSF where we're looking at essentially peer-to-peer networks that you form with smartphones and direct radio connection from smartphone to smartphones, which is something you can actually do with smartphones. And there's there's sort of a lot of motivations for why you'd want to build these networks that don't use the infrastructure. But they're really hard situations to build networks. So it's at an extreme because you don't know who's there and you know nothing about the network and your, your ability to connect with nearby people is somewhat limited. And so that, was, that came to us from the outside world, but we're building new sort of graph theoretical foundations into what's the, the right way to build algorithms. Uh, another problem that's at an extreme, but motivated by the real world is actually in biology. And so I've been working with some biologists at Tufts and we're looking at the way that these cellular systems do these bioelectric interactions involving the way that they move positive ions in and out of their cell membranes into the uh, extracellular environment. These type of interactions turn out to be really important for driving a lot of morphological processes, and they don't really understand how they work. But if you see them as a distributed system, a really limited and difficult distributed system, you can actually get mathematical insight. This new book you've written, in a way, brings two sides of your uh, life together. And how did you see that happening, or did it sort of sneak up on you? I had written some of these student books early on, like we uh, like we talked about, and so I ended up writing sort of three books for students, and one book that was really about careers. And this was in 2012, so and it was because I was transitioning to academia, so that was uh, that was relevant to me. After that book in 2016, I published one called Deep Work, that at first was motivated just because I was interested in um, what I needed to know, let's say, to succeed academically, right? So it was about the the power of concentration and something I'd observed in the academic circles. But the book also turned out to be quite a bit about technology because it turns out that it was technologies were creating these unintended consequences on our ability to focus. And so I wrote this book, it came out in 2016, and it threw me into this world of the impact of technology and our culture, in this, in this case, technology and our work culture. And it was at this point that I, I had the realization that actually this is an area that makes a lot of sense for a computer scientist to mine. The interaction of technologies and its unexpected consequences on other parts of our culture and other parts of our life. And so for my new book and the book I'm writing now, they're both very consciously working right at this intersection because now I'm seeing a lot of consilience between what I'm writing and what I do, which is of the various voices we need 
working on these issues of the unintentional consequences of technology, we should have some technologists in there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so this is what I've been doing going forward is now I I realize that this this writing ability that I had honed is actually something I can deploy in a way that makes a lot of sense for what I'm doing as an academic. So so there are other younger academics than you who are struggling with this combination of different knowledge domains. They see promise in putting together different things. Reflecting back on your own journey on this, what kind of advice would you have for them on navigating the boundaries of disciplines, yet the the excitement of working across? There's a couple things there. I mean, one, going cross-discipline, I mean, the main difficulty is learning the language of the other discipline. And, and, and this can take a long time, and you have to be ready for it to take a long time. Um, and two, I would say that the key is to not allow that to take your focus off of impact. So, you know, at, at some point, I did this quantitative study on my field. Uh, this was maybe two years into my career at Georgetown. And I said, okay, I'm thinking about tenure. Uh, I'm a scientist. I want to study like what matters for for getting tenure. So I actually did this semi-scientific study where I found what I looked for uh, people who had come out of professors who had come out of the same research groups. So that I was controlling for the variable of educational background, where one of the professors did very well in the tenure process, and maybe the other pr- professor had a harder time. And then I broke them down the numbers and I tried to analyze them and see you know what differentiated between these two groups because I was just curious. And it turned out that the single number that best predicted like an easy tenure experience was the number of citations on your five most cited papers. I'd assumed that maybe the quantity of high quality papers was what really mattered, but this is what what the real differentiating factor was. And so I think that's a proxy for impact, right? So actually producing papers that other people are going to build on, which means you have to tackle problems that other people actually care about. And so that's typically my advice, you know, whether you're going cross-discipline or not, is uh, focus relentlessly on the impact factor of the work. And again, this could be very unique to the particular subfield of computer science I am, so I don't mean to extrapolate, but just having a lot of publications, for example, wasn't the strongest predictor. Uh, because if you're out there just hunting for low-hanging fruit, I mean, you can do that, and it's better than not doing anything at all. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time, now I know, having been on the other side of the 10-year process, that this is probably a good proxy for what your letters are going to say, mm-hmm. because your letters are going to look pretty honestly at contribution. So let's do another uh, part of an academic's life, this balance of teaching and research, where uh, sometimes it's easy to think of these as conflictual burdens of, a, of an academic, but others have navigated this in different ways. How, how do you see those coming together in your own life? So, I mean, to me, teaching is often a great learning tool. That's what people often say, right? If you have to prepare something to teach it, you're going to learn that better than almost anything else you can do. And so from that perspective, I mean, teaching has definitely been uh, a useful learning goal for me. Uh, Something else I learned about teaching, and this was actually a habit I developed in graduate school when I was TAing, and I sort of brought it to Georgetown, is focusing on the the aspects that really make a difference to like the quality of the pedagogy, the, the student experience. And you want to put a lot of energy into those. What you want to make sure, however, is that you're not tripping yourself up or creating lots of time burdens that are sort of unnecessary or in some sense are just logistical or administrative overhead that you've self-imposed. So I'm, I'm sort of known for having some streamlined systems for, let's say, like how problem sets come in and are graded or, or things that are sort of orthogonal from the pedagogical value. So uh, my approach has always been 
try to get a, as largest percentage of your teaching attention as possible on actually preparing and delivering the best possible lectures. And if you can take time that would otherwise be wasted in inefficient administrative processes surrounding how you administer the course and can get more of that into the actual pedagogy itself, it usually works out being much better for you, but also a lot better for the students. So uh, with these two halves of your life coming together, do you see that as a, a, a real change in, in your research agenda going forward? Do you see a path ahead of you where you can mine a lot of problems thinking about things with both halves of your mind working on it? I'm definitely thinking through these type of paths in more detail right now. And so, you know, I, I just finished this book that's out now about unintentional consequence attack on essentially our personal lives. The book I just started writing is essentially about, well, the working title is A World Without Email. <laughs> that gives you some sense, but it's about some of these un, uh, unintentional consequences of technology on the way that we actually work. But beyond that, I think what I'm interested in is actually taking the, the writing side of my life and shifting that closer to the academic side of my life. So some of the collaborations that I'm exploring right now are collaborations that allows me to produce both public-facing and academic peer-reviewed work in that field of impact of technology at the same time that I continue to sort of advance the sort of very specific cross-discipline theoretical computer science problems I have on. And so that's where I'm trying to get in which both of those worlds are completely intertwined in my academic life. And it sounds like there, there may be new collaborations and, and new disciplines that would contribute to that future. It really is interesting. Like, for example, there's an interesting connection, which is unexpected, between engineering and understanding uh, sort of the philosophy of technology, right? So there, if you study the philosophy of technology, there's this particular brand of this particular strand called technological determinism that's sort of interested in the ability of technology to have sort of unintentional consequences that aren't actually the decisions of human actors, but that the technology itself changes human culture in a way that, that is not pre-planned by the humans themselves. And it turns out one way that proves useful to understanding these impacts is to think about technological systems in the context of dynamical system theory, which comes right out of systems engineering and mathematics, which are these sort of mathematical models for systems in which their, their feedback and intertwining is so complex that changing small amounts of the input or changing small amounts about how the system works can have massive unpredictable results. And so one of the theories I'm working on just as an example of this consilience is actually trying to use some of the mathematical language of dynamical system theory to understand why, for example, when someone comes along and introduces, let's say, email to an organization, it can cause massive changes to the way the whole organization works in a way that could be completely unplanned and unintentional. It's because I believe we have a lot of these sort of technocultural systems that are essentially dynamical and that we underestimate the degree to which small changes of the introduction of new items, forces, or services can actually cause really large unpredictable effects. So as an example of taking an idea that might be familiar to a computer scientist and seeing, hey, this could maybe understand what's going on in this philo philosophical domain, like understanding the way we interact with these tools. Well, and, and this sort of perspective, it seems to me, fits into what you said a little earlier. P pick a problem that may have impact, and I can't imagine a set of issues that uh, is so obviously impactful uh, for the whole world these days. So, Cal Newport, thank you very much for joining us today on our little podcast. We appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. <laughs>